We have been in a, a book study of, uh, of Hebrews uh, for over eight months now. And uh, last Sunday we uh, concluded uh, chapter 10. When I looked over the uh, end of the year calendar, uh, which includes, of course, the uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays, uh, also a children's choir special, the adult uh, choir special, I thought it would be best to uh, suspend the rest of our Hebrew study until the first of the year, just for the sake of continuity. So in January, right after the first of the year, uh, we'll return to our Hebrew study. We'll move into chapter 11, which provides us that wonderful list of Bible characters uh, who were inducted into God's hall of fame of faith. And I trust as we... Uh, uh, study there that will be greatly inspired by their example. Uh, it's been my habit uh, for many years now, uh, during the month of November, uh, to bring a message on financial stewardship, and that's going to be my focus uh, this morning. And I need to begin by, by thanking the church family uh, for uh, your wonderful giving uh, this year of 2014. Uh, at the present time, we are exceeding the 2014 uh, budget. Uh, you're giving to the uh, second phase of the renovation program, which is over and above the regular budget, has remained very steady, very generous, enabling us to complete in, uh, many different projects. Uh, we've seen wonderful designated giving, again, over and above regular ties and offerings, to things like the Annie Armstrong and Lottie Moon mission offerings, uh, Love Indeed, uh, Sound Choices, all sorts of benevolence and bereavement uh, needs. Uh, the only area of concern, to be very honest with you, has been the last couple of months. Uh, you know, it's not uh, unusual uh, during the summer months to see a decrease in giving and then for the giving to pick back up when you uh, enter the fall. Uh, we saw wonderful giving during all three of the summer months, uh, but the last two months have actually been our weakest two months all year, uh, both in September and October. We did not meet the monthly required amounts, so bottom line, thank you, thank you, thank you, but let's end the year well, and uh, let's, uh, let's remain uh, faithful. I've entitled today's message, uh, Applying God's Wisdom uh, to My Financial Circumstances. And so please take your Bibles and turn first to James chapter 1, and I want us to look at verses 9 through 11. And the reason that I begin with these verses is that they address the two financial extremes that a person can find himself in, poverty and prosperity. So James chapter 1 let me begin at verse 9, and we'll read all the way through verse 12. It says, But let the brother of humble circumstances, that's a kind way to saying, hey, those of you that are poor, uh, let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man, the one experiencing prosperity, glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass... He will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, 
and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And then I like verse 12 because it's an encouragement, whether you're experiencing poverty or prosperity, to remain faithful. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Following your sermon notes, I hope you picked up a copy as you were coming in, and I want us to begin with God's wisdom uh, when I am down and out. And uh, looking at our time and all that we've had going on this morning, we'll probably not get any further than, uh, than this portion of the sermon uh, this morning. So we'll look at God's wisdom when I'm down and out, and then we'll come back next week and look at God's wisdom uh, when I'm in prosperity, and then we'll conclude by looking at God's wisdom uh, for all of us in, in any and all circumstances. So God's wisdom when I am down and out. And the, f- and the very first thing God wants me to do, if I find myself in, in economic hard times and I'm really struggling financially to make ends meet, is to, re- to rejoice in my wealth in Christ. That's where we need to begin. He says, rejoice in your wealth in Christ. Uh, look at uh, verse 9 again of James chapter 1. But let the brother of humble circumstance, what glory, or that word could be translated rejoice, find joy in your high position. So God says, even when I'm struggling financially, I can still rejoice. Why? Because I possess spiritual riches that can never be taken away from me. Do you remember the example of the Hebrew Christians that we looked at the last couple of weeks as we were concluding chapter 10? You remember they suffered a terrible persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. And as a result of that persecution, they literally lost everything. They lost their homes. They lost all their material possessions, all their livestock, all their clothing. They were literally left destitute as a result of persecution. Yet we read in chapter 10, verse 34, When all your belongings were seized, you endured your loss, and I love this, gladly. They lost everything. Now think about that. Put yourself in that situation. If you suddenly woke up and you had no home, no material possessions, no finances, no clothing, but what's on your back, and not only you in that situation, but your entire family is in that situation, yet it says, they what? They endured that gladly. Well, how did they endure that gladly? It seems to make no sense, but the rest of the verse tells us, because you knew that you still possessed something much better, which would last forever. They still rejoiced in the midst of difficulty, because they knew in Christ they had not only found true happiness, they had found lasting happiness that could not be taken away from them. They, they, they lived out the reality that true happiness, true joy is not dependent upon outward circumstances, but it is, it is dependent upon Christ who lives within as I give Him total surrender of my life and I put my trust 
in Him. So look at the key truth, the key truth there in your sermon notes. Look on difficult circumstances, difficult financial circumstances, as an opportunity to demonstrate that true joy is not found in material possessions, but in possessing Christ. And folks, don't you think our nation needs to learn that today? Uh, We have become uh, lost in our affluence and our prosperity. And I know in many ways we're uh, in some tough economic times, but we have become so self-absorbed, so... uh, used to affluency that, uh, that we've lost sight of where you find true and lasting happiness. So it shouldn't surprise us if God would allow His people to go through difficulty to be able to demonstrate to a lost world where you find true, lasting happiness. So if you find yourself down and out, the first thing you need to do is rejoice in your wealth in Christ. The second thing you need to do that you see there in your notes is to follow the example of the Macedonian Christians in 2 Corinthians 8. To follow the examples of the Macedonian Christians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 who gave generously despite being down and out and in great financial need. Please take your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want to look at the... uh, verses 1 through 5, and just draw some lessons from these Macedonian believers for us today if we do find ourselves being down and out and struggling financially to make ends meet. Now, let me just give you the background to these verses. As you know, the Apostle Paul had a unique calling to Gentile churches. And at this particular time, the church in Judea, in other words, Jewish believers in Judea, were suffering from a famine, from a drought, and they were hurting financially. They were hurting economically, making ends meet. So as Paul traveled to the various Gentile churches to minister to them, to strengthen them, he began to take up an offering for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem and Judea who were suffering during this time of famine. And so it it was a wonderful way that God used in the early days of the church to unite the church, the Jews and and, and the Gentiles, who had a history of tremendous animosity. animosity. And and, uh, and so he's going around taking up this offering, and, and he... came to the uh, Macedonian Christians. This would have been like, uh, like uh, the church at Philippi would have been one of the Macedonian churches. And these folks were really su- suffering. They were suffering persecution. And not, not like the Hebrew Christians in the book of Hebrews. If you remember our study in the book of Hebrews, uh, they were in danger of being imprisoned, being tortured, and suffering martyrdom. Now, at the time Paul wrote these letters to the church at Corinth, the Macedonian believers were suffering persecution, but it was in this regard. In the Roman Empire, you could not get a job without joining one of the trade guilds. And every trade guild sort of had a symbol that would be one of the false deities within the Roman Empire. I mean, the Roman Empire, they worship multiple gods. And unless 
you acknowledged that you would worship this false deity, you could not get into the trade guild. And you could not find work. And because of the Christian's unwillingness to worship any other God than the true God, the Lord Jesus Christ, they were blackballed from all the trade guilds. They literally could not find work. And it thrust these families in Macedonia into literally deep poverty. Matter of fact, uh, you'll see in verse 2, he, he talks about their deep poverty. And in the Greek text, uh, the word that is used is the most intense word for poverty that literally means to become destitute. And so these believers were just struggling just to find their next meal. And they, they were just in a literal battle for survival in, with their families economically. Well, when Paul comes to them, he's thinking, no way I'm going to ask them to participate in this offering. I mean, they're, they're in as bad or worse need than their brothers in Judea that we're taking up this offering for. Matter of fact, we should be also taking up an offering for them. Well, when the Macedonian believers found out that Paul had been traveling, taking up this offering, and that he was excluding them, they went to Paul, and you know what they did? They begged Paul for the opportunity to give. They begged Paul for the opportunity to give, despite what they were struggling with. So, look at several lessons that we can learn from them. And the first is this. If you're down and out economically, if you're struggling financially, here's the first lesson we learn from Macedonian Christians. Give despite your circumstances. Give despite your circumstances. Let the wealth of your generosity disguise, disguise the depths of your poverty. And that's exactly what we see in these Macedonian believers. Look at uh, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now, brethren, we wish uh, to make known to you the grace of God, which has been, been given in the churches of Macedonia. And let me just pause right here. You might say, well, why did Paul even bring up the example of the Macedonians to these believers in Corinth? Well, you need to understand, the believers in Corinth, at this particular time, they were not struggling. They were wallowing in financial prosperity. And they had previously committed to Paul to give very generously to this offering. But now they're beginning to sort of renege and sort of backtrack on that commitment, being hesitant to really come through and give as they had indicated to Paul. So what Paul does, he uses the example of these poor Macedonians who gave to the offering to motivate, to spur these prosperous Christians in Corinth uh, to give. And look at verses, uh, and then verse 2, and here's the key. He says, the, the churches of Macedonia, that in great ordeal of affl- affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Now, folks, look at that verse very carefully. It really makes no sense from a human perspective. I mean, you don't often see these things put together in the same sentence. Great ordeal of affliction combined with what? Abundance of joy. Okay, they're really hurting, but in the midst of their hurt, they're just overflowing with joy. And then the second thing that you see put together, deep poverty, and as I mentioned to you, destitute poverty, I mean, they're hurting, again, struggling just to survive, yet that's, mixed, that's put together with what? 
wealth of liberal, liberality, them being generous. You know, for those that struggle to make ends meet, and we've all been there, or at least most of us have been there at one time or another. I've been there, and I've done this very th- same thing. We, we often think, I've even said it out loud, you know, if I only had more, I would give to the cause of Christ. But folks, I think you can see this scripture would challenge that kind of thinking. Despite being persecuted and living in poverty, these Macedonian Christians overflowed with the wealth of liberality. Matter of fact, they're, now think about this. Their giving actually put their lives and the lives of their families in jeopardy. I mean, they literally gave to others what they could not afford to give away. They gave to others what they desperately needed themselves. You say, that's foolish. That's totally impractical. That's reckless. But we must remember, God's ways are not our ways. I mentioned one of the Macedonian churches was the church at Philippi. And this would have been one of the groups he would have been referring to here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And of course, you know, he wrote uh, a letter to the church at Philippi, which is called Philippians. And uh, keep your finger there in 2 Corinthians 8, but turn over to Philippians chapter 4. I want to show you something very fascinating that might give us a little different perspective on their sacrificial giving. In chapter 4, one of the things Paul does is he thanks these Macedonian Christians in Philippi for their, for their giving, and especially for their generous sacrificial giving. Let me pick up at um, uh, verse 14. You follow me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you remember Paul was imprisoned at this time. And, uh, and again, another example of the generosity of these persecuted believers in Philippi in the midst of their own need, being generous to others. And verse 15, And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. But even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Now again, folks, put this in the backdrop of what I've just said. These are folks that are being persecuted. These are folks that are struggling with poverty, making ends meet. And you see them not only being generous in this offering that Paul took up for these, Gentile, for these Jewish churches that were struggling in Judea, but they were also very generous to Paul himself to minister to his needs. And then notice what he says in verse 17. This is what I want you to see. He says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the, what's the next word? Profit. I seek for the profit which increases to your account. You might want to circle or underline that phrase, the profit which increases to your account. In the Greek text, that phrase was used 
in the money markets of that day to indicate the interest that would accumulate to a person's investment account. So do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying that these Macedonian Christians, these these Christians at Philippi, through their sacrificial giving, even when they were down and out, from God's perspective, they were actually making an, an investment that would yield them a return both now and in eternity. Look at the rest of this portion of Scripture. Look at verse 18. He says, But I have received everything in full, and having an abundance, I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphrodites what you have sent, and notice how they gave it, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, verse 19, And my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Folks, how often do we take verse 19 and we just yank it right out of its context and apply it? Yo, God, I need that car. Or I need this luxury or that luxury. Look at it in its context. That was written to a group of people who were down and out, that were being persecuted, that were being destitute. Yet, despite their circumstances, they were giving generously to the cause of Christ. They were giving sacrificially. Paul says, I give you a guarantee, because you can't outgive God. And God is going to supply your needs. You can count on it. You can bank on it. In light of your faithfulness, in light of your trust in Him. Look at the second lesson that we can learn from the Macedonian Christians back in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You need to go back there. Not only give despite circumstances, but also give enthusiastically. In other words, don't give grudgingly, don't give under compulsion, but give out of delight. Give enthusiastically. Let the spontaneity of your giving preclude the need to being asked. In other words, there shouldn't have to be pressure put on God's people. Because of God's grace at work in us, we should be a generous people. We should be a tender and a sensitive people to the needs of others. Look at verses 3 and 4. For I testify... That according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. No pressure, no compulsion. Why? First four, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Wow. Again, persecuted, down and out destitute, and they come to Paul begging, begging, begging for favor, for the favor participating in this offering. It's, it's, just a, it's just an amazing example of where God wants us. And, and let me, let me, let's just raise a very obvious question. I think there's a simple answer. What motivated that kind of giving? Well, the answer is found in this same chapter. Look at verse 9. This is what motivated them. Verse 9 of chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became what? Poor, 
that you through his poverty might become rich. They were just following the example of their master and their Lord. Again, they were just being like Jesus. That's all they were being. I mean, you would think the Macedonians would have been begging for someone to help them. You would think if they had been asked to give, they would have excused themselves in light of their dire circumstances, and no one would have faulted them. Not a soul would have faulted them. Paul wasn't even going to bring up the offering because of their circumstances. But instead, they begged to give, knowing, knowing, knowing that they have no surplus to give out of. None whatsoever. That if they're going to give... There's only one way it's going to happen, and that's sacrificially to the point of hurt. To the, to the point of hurting themselves and jeopardizing themselves and their families. So, we're to give despite our circumstances. We're to give enthusiastically, motivated by the example of Jesus. And then notice the third thing as we uh, close out this morning. Give knowing you cannot outgive God. Give knowing you cannot outgive God. Let the sacrifice of your gift be an expression of your love for and your trust in God. Give knowing you cannot outgive God. Look at verse 5. And this, he's referring to their giving, not as we had expected, in which they, they blew us away. But they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. There's the key in this whole passage. What explains everything is they first gave themselves to God. And they realized that they put their trust in Him, they could never outgive God. Uh, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, just one other chapter. Let me show you a, f- a fascinating principle that God lays down about giving. Look at chapter 9, look at verse 6, because these Macedonians, they, uh, they trusted God. They believed what He said. They put their confidence in Him. Verse 6 says, Now this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then I love verse 8. Why? Because God is able. What is God able to do? God is able to make all grace abound to you. What's the grace he's referring to there? The grace to give. The grace to be generous. The grace to invest in the lives of others in the cause of Christ. That always... Having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Do you hear what, God, what Paul is saying? He said, I'm giving you a promise. God is able not only to meet your basic needs, but as you continue to give, as you continue to sow, you're going to reap something. Again, not only the meeting of your needs, but He's going to give you adequacy to continue to reach out and minister to the needs of others. But if you become stingy, if you, if you withdraw your giving, if you stop sowing, you're also going to not what? You're not going to reap the benefit. You're not going to reap the benefit of having your own basic needs met. And not only having your own basic needs met, but then having the ability to give to others. So the principle here is very simple. If you want to receive, give. And don't misunderstand that. 
That's not a selfish statement. For a believer, we give to receive so that we can continue to what? Give. It should be just a continual circle, continual flow. As I, as I sow, putting my, doing it, putting my trust in God to be generous and ministering the needs of others, God says He'll bring that back upon me. Meeting my needs, giving me the ability to continue to sow into the needs of others, into the cause of Christ. Just a beautiful, beautiful truth. And, and also don't miss, going back to 2 Corinthians 8, they saw their sacrificial giving, first and foremost, as an opportunity to express their love for Jesus. If there's one thing I would not want you to miss in this message, it's that. They saw their giving, first and foremost, as an opportunity to express their love for Jesus. Did not Jesus sacrifice His life for them? Did not Jesus pay off their sin debt in full and then credit to their account His righteousness when He suffered and died on Calvary's cross? Well, therefore, no gift could be too extravagant. No sacrifice could be too great for their Jesus who had loved them in such a way. And they also, also saw their economic adversity as an opportunity to learn to trust Jesus and to place their trust in Jesus. In other words, would they really believe the promises that Jesus had given them? For example, Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Here's a good one. Give, and you will receive. This is what Jesus said. Give, and you will receive. Your gift will be returned to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. And again, he gave that promise not as a selfish motivation to get, to spend on self. He gave that promise as a guarantee that if you will be sensitive to Him, you to obey Him, continue to be generous, continue to sow, you are going to reap, you are going to receive back. He will meet your basic needs, and even beyond those basic needs, so that you can continue to give to others and minister to the body of Christ, minister to the cause of Christ. So a wonderful truth to the day is we look at these Macedonian believers who are struggling. And what do we learn from them? Give despite your circumstances. Continue to give enthusiastically. And give knowing you can't outgive God. And let your giving first be an expression of your love for Jesus. And then let your giving be an acknowledgement of your trust in Him. I think of the Malachi passage. It says what? Bring your tithe to the what? To the storehouse. And he said, and he said, and it's the only time that I know in the entire Bible where God says, test me in something. He said, you test me in this. That if you'll be faithful, that I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you that you cannot contain. So we don't need to make this giving stuff real complicated. It just comes down to my love for Jesus. And how much I value Him. And through my giving, my desire to demonstrate my love for Him. One, one last example, then what will be done. And I've shared this before, but it's, it, it's, it's such a beautiful example of how we should give. And that's Mary of Bethany. Right at the very end of Jesus' life, she anoints Him 
with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us it would have taken a laborer, a common laborer, working every day for 365 days, saving every penny of his earnings, not spending a cent, to have earned enough money to be able to have purchased something of that nature. And you remember, Jesus is eating with his disciples. She comes in right before his death on Calvary's cross. She breaks that vial and pours it, every drop on Jesus, and it says the entire house was filled with the aroma. And you remember how the disciples responded to such an act? The Bible says they began to scold Mary. These are Christ's disciples, Peter, John, and James, Andrew. They begin to scold her. It says they got angry with Mary. And they actually ask her the question, Mary, why this waste? I mean, you could have sold that, at least. Then we could have taken the money, put it in the treasury, and it could have been distributed to minister to poor people, people in need. What a waste! And as they're scolding Mary, as they're jumping all over, Jesus suddenly burst in through the conversation. And in a fairly stern way, he looks at his men, he says, Men, leave this woman alone. Because what she's done is a good thing. Because she's done it for me, to anoint me beforehand for my burial. And then he made a fascinating statement. He said, Men, you see this woman? What she's just done to me? This will be spoken of in memory of her wherever the gospel is preached throughout all ages. Wow. Now, don't miss what Jesus was doing in that statement. He was uniting. He was bringing together. He was coupling. The reason for which he came to this earth and what Mary had just done to him. And what Jesus was saying to his disciples, he said, Guys, you see that? Did you just see that? That's what Christianity is all about. That's the heart of Christianity. That is what the gospel is meant to produce in the heart of an individual. Because, men, what just happened was Mary's eyes were open to see something you haven't seen yet in its fullness. She has realized by God's grace as she's looked to me, that I've come to this earth to die for her sins and the sins of humanity, and that I'm on my way to the cross. And when her eyes were open to that reality, that, he, that I came to this earth to pay her sin debt and to set her free and to give her eternal life, the lights went on. Wait a minute, as we said earlier, no gift could be too extravagant for my Jesus, no sacrifice too great. And she realized, now my life is simple. I'm just to live the rest of my life looking for all the different creative ways I can show my love for Jesus. All the different creative ways I can demonstrate how much I value Jesus. The worth I place on Jesus. And folks, that's the heart of giving. It's not being compelled to give. It's not giving a tithe or an offering because of some legalistic duty, or you think you have to, or God's going to blow you away because, you know, you've not met some requirement. No, He wants to set you free from that. 
wherever there's a problem in giving within God's church, the greatest need is simply to see Jesus. To see Jesus in His love and in His fullness and His grace. And to be so overcome with that that you realize, hey, I just want to love Him. I just want to show through my giving how much I value Him. Knowing that I can't outgive Him. Knowing that I can trust Him, not only to meet my basic needs, but to keep me in a position where I can continue to give to the needs of others. Father, let this truth uh, ring in our hearts. Let it sink down deep into our hearts, take root into our hearts. And Lord, as we've seen at the very close of the message, our greatest need is not to be compelled to give. (coughs) Our greatest need is to see the beauty of our Savior, to see the beauty of His grace, to see the beauty of His love, to see the depths of His sacrifice that would set our hearts free from stinginess, that would set our hearts free from selfishness, that would set our hearts free from materialism, and set our hearts free not only to love you, but to love others, and to follow the example of the one who, though he was rich, he became poor, that through his poverty we might be made rich. Which in His name we do pray. Amen.